Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hello and welcome back to The Bunker. I'm Naomi Smith. On this week's podcast, it's a pandemic and not a mandemic. Britain's COVID policy is repeatedly skewed towards men, according to a report by the Women and Equality Select Committee. How can it possibly be that our cabinet of wannabe blokey blokes can produce policy that doesn't take women's needs into account? Plus, another green world. With a major climate and ecological emergency bill going through Parliament, our special guest is Green Party MP Caroline Lucas, joining us to explain us all. And Mastermind is getting a new host, with Samira Ahmed, tipped to replace John Humphreys. Is it time for a rethink of quiz shows? And what would our panel choose for their specialist subject? All that and more on today's Bunker. Welcome back to the weekly panel edition of The Bunker. We hope you're enjoying the podcast, and if you are, why not give us a nice review and positive rating on the Apple podcast platform? You'll be helping us to entice new listeners into the depths of The Bunker. On today's panel, we have comedian and broadcaster Ahir Shah. Hi, Ahir. Hello, hello, hello. So, uh, in the last week, Trump has been acquitted although seven Republicans did manage to find their spine and vote in favour of conviction. Um, The result obviously surprised very few people. What did did you enjoy most about it? Was it Trump's lawyers or, you know, Mitch McConnell delaying the impeachment until Trump was out of office and then saying, oh dear, we can't convict Trump because he's no longer in office? Well, I thought you say that very few people found it surprising. I was quite surprised that they managed to get seven in the end. That was uh, kind of something. I enjoyed the lawyers. I, the fact that we had this uh, fanc- fascinating sort of several days long bout of constitutional law professor versus some guy was really, really uh, entertaining in a way that it definitely shouldn't have been because it was a very serious uh, topic. Yeah. But I think that with the speech that he gave afterwards, Mitch McConnell gave a very, very resounding statement, which is basically that if you are the head of state who wishes to foment a violent insurrection against a co-equal branch of government, please don't do that. Also joining us, we have Chief Executive of the New Economics Foundation, Miata Farnbola. Miata, uh, how are you? Yeah, good, thank you. Um, we're in the run-up to the budget um, just a couple of weeks ago, and everyone is bracing themselves for a, for a pretty grim economic year. Um, you're doing an event with Annalise Dodds on Labour's new economic strategy, and we don't tend to hear much about that or anything other than COVID at the moment. But give us a summary. What, what's at the core of it? What, what are the key standout items? Well, so I think the the big thing for them is their critique of the government. You know, they're arguing that we've entered the pandemic with an economy that lacks resilience. And whether you measure that through the socioeconomic inequality we see or the fact that families don't really have financial resilience with, you know, a big chunk of families only having uh, 100 quid in the bank or insecurity at work. And that all of this stuff has been compounded by 10 years of conservative policy uh, that essentially has weakened our economic base, whether that's through austerity or the over-reliance on uh, printing money uh, to get the economy going. Um, And their big argument is that actually the pandemic uh, creates a moment for change. This is a kind of 1945 moment where we should be looking to drive up living standards uh, across our communities, as well as building the resilience of our communities and responding to climate change. Um, This is all good stuff that we like. Uh, What we have 
yet to see is the flesh on the bones of this. So they haven't really charted out um, the kind of the policy perspectives that would sit underneath that, uh, although that's what they promised is coming this year. But they mm. have muted things like, you know, a green fiscal stimulus um, that would unlock about 400,000 jobs. Uh, I like that because it's drawn from uh, NEF policy, uh, which is good. Uh, but good to see the emphasis on green and good to see the level of ambition as well. Uh, so more to come, uh, but but it's looking hopeful. And we're going to be talking more about this later, but the, the sort of very masculine uh, nature of number 10. But Labour's shadow um, chancellor is, of course, a woman. What What's your take on Annalise? Yeah, so I think she's really thoughtful. I think she's doing a good job, but it's a hard job. Um, it's miserable being in opposition. Uh, no one really listens to you at the best of times. And so she's having to try to chart um, uh, an agenda, an economic agenda uh, for Labour, where there's very little space to do that. Um, and, you know, I think she's she's got a bit of grief for not being visible enough, but I think it's quite hard to do. But I think her instincts are right. Um, I think, you know, what I'm encouraged by, what we were most worried about was that the sort of ambition, you know, whether you uh, loathed or liked the kind of Corbyn McDonald leadership, they, they were very clear about their ambition for the country. They were very clear about the need for an ambitious economic prospectus and there was some worry that actually Annalise might shy away from that but but certainly in rhetorical terms they are there in terms of ambition but they're trying to straddle this big ambition uh, but competent credible uh, mm. which is a hard thing to straddle um, and very very hard uh, to, to try and do that in opposition. <laughs> well speaking of competent credible women in opposition we're absolutely delighted to be joined today by a very special guest it is Green Party MP for Brighton Pavilion, Caroline Lucas. Hello, Caroline. How are you? Hi, Naomi. Thank you for such a lovely introduction. I am so much better now. Thank oh, you. good. Um, we've, we've been hearing this week about hotel quarantining starting and £10,000 fines for returning travellers who breach it uh, and some you know, pretty hefty 10-year sentences attached to that if you lie about where you've been. But you've been really focusing on the lack of PPE for people in quarantine hotels. Can you just tell listeners what's going on there? And, you know, are we setting ourselves up for some kind of COVID petri dishes in these quarantine hotels? Well, it's, it's so hard to know where to start with government incompetence on dealing with COVID. But certainly I've got real concerns about these quarantine hotels. Um, we've heard from Australia where they have learnt the hard way what works and what doesn't work. And so, for example, in Australia, the staff in those hotels are not allowed to work anywhere else as well. So they're not kind of taking the virus with them potentially to other workplaces. They do have um, the, the, the more sophisticated masks, not just the basic masks, and yet we're not going to do that uh, in the UK. They, in Australia, get daily tests, even on their day off, they are asked and paid to, to take tests. We're not going to do that either. And it just feels as if this British exceptionalism just runs through everything that we do. And usually, with the exception of the of the vaccination programme, which thanks to the NHS is, is doing brilliantly, but usually, whether it is getting hold of the PPE or whether it is paying people enough to, to self-isolate, which we're not doing, we just seem to choose the wrong thing. And we don't learn either from our own mistakes or indeed the mistake or, or, or the experience of, of other countries. And it is so frustrating just to see that happening again and again. We want an Australia-style deal, except when actually an Australia-style <laughs> setup would actually be quite good for us. Um, what What is the green position on holidays? You know, obviously, everyone's desperate to get away. The, the travel industry employs thousands and thousands of people, but COVID has given us an emissions holiday too, and we're you know maybe feeling like our carbon footprint isn't as bad because we've we've not done our usual holiday. How do we square you know that reasonable uh, desire for a break with the climate emergency? Well, I think the way to do it is to try to work out how to do it in, in a fair way. So, I mean, just to, to answer the bit about the, 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 the kind of timings and so forth, I mean, absolutely, I think the holidays and the timings of holidays should be dictated by the, the data and how safe it is looking at a range of criteria to do with what the virus is doing, not just by arbitrary dates. And if you heard some of the COVID recovery group this morning on the radio, um, some of those um, backbench right-wing Tory MPs, you know, they, they they want us all to be kind of holidaying, you know, pretty much but uh, by the end of April, come what may, which I think is quite worrying. In terms of actually how you how you square that circle that you described, I think policies like a frequent flyer levy 
can be really helpful here. So basically what they're saying is that, you know, if a, if a family is, 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 is making a holiday abroad by, by aeroplane, I don't know, once a year, once every two years, then the price would remain much as it is now. But for those people who are flying very, very regularly, and it is those frequent flyers that are really most responsible for the for the carbon footprint rising, then you would make the the levy, the, the extra tax on those flights uh, increase significantly so that there would be a, a much bigger disincentive to people to, to fly. And you would try to kind of share out, if you like, the, the available carbon budget more equally between people across the country. Oh, it's like so a reverse you, air mile scheme. It's great. Exactly. A reverse air mile scheme. That's a very good way of putting it. Um, because we, we, you know, the, what we have to do as we as we make this shift to a greener economy is to do it in a fair way. And I think there's so much work going on now on that. I mean, all credit to, to New Economics Foundation as well, Amiata, and to IPPR and others who are kind of really trying to get to grips with what a Green New Deal would look like in practice. And what we do know is that social justice and equity absolutely has to be at the heart of that. Now, those two last points you made might might be the answer to, to this next question. Another new poll, uh, this one from Ipsos Mori, puts the Greens ahead of the Liberal Democrats at 8% over the Lib Dems on 7. Is it just push factors from, from Labour and the Lib Dems? Or, or you know, do you think that actually the, the Green agenda is pulling people in? Are we looking at the Green Party becoming the permanent third party in British politics? Well, I hope you're looking at the Green Party becoming the second party and, and then a party of government, as they are in so many other countries around the world, where you've got a proportional uh, electoral system. So, I mean, our ambitions are higher than the third party, but we'll we'll start with that. And yes, I think there's a combination of factors, but certainly we know that when people are talking more about environment issues, when it's in the news, as it is right now, partly because the UK will be the host of the big climate meeting at the end of the year, so-called COP26, uh, when, we, when, when, when it's in the news because there's lots of discussion about how we recover from the pandemic in a green way. When people are talking green and they think green and they realise that what they want is actually the, the the real Green Party green, not uh, pretend models from from the other parties. So I think it really helps us when climate, nature are on the agenda. Plus, as you say, I think there is a sense as well of people perhaps coming to us from from other parties because they want a bit more boldness and and a party that absolutely doesn't just talk green when when it's fashionable to do so, but has been doing so for a, for a very long time. Government policies during the pandemic have repeatedly skewed towards men, and that's according to a new report by the Women and Equalities Select Committee. Committee Chair Caroline Noakes said that the government had repeatedly failed to consider the labour market and caring inequalities faced by women, who are often overrepresented in low-paid, insecure jobs in sectors that locked down early, like hospitality, and were much more likely to take on caring responsibilities and homeschooling than men, which made them less likely to qualify for things like furlough and sick pay. The report makes 20 recommendations, including making it easier for staff to get flexible working arrangements and funding training schemes specifically aimed at women. And this week, the TUC, Amnesty International, Save the Children and Fawcett Society have asked the Equality and Human Rights Commission to use its powers to investigate. Miata, this report is pretty damning. How have government policies discriminated against women during the pandemic? So I, I think there are three things. And, I, you know, it, the irony, it's not active discrimination. It's just a lack of thought, um, which is possibly not surprising given uh, the set of decision makers. Uh, mm-hmm. but they just haven't thought about it through the eyes and uh, through the lens of women. Uh, but I think the first is the the sectors that have been disproportionately hit uh, by this pandemic, uh, whether it's retail or hospitality, we know they have a high proportion of women. Uh, so women are being hammered in the labour market. I think the second thing is then childcare provision. Um, even before we had uh, homeschooling, Childcare providers are really, really struggling. Uh, the provision has been quite patchy uh, during the pandemic is, you know, some have locked down, some haven't. Uh, if your child has a vague sniffle, you have to sort of take them at home. And yet parents are having to bear both the, the burden of looking after their children, but also the cost of it. Mm-hmm. And I've been completely struck by the fact that the government has done nothing, absolutely nothing on childcare through this pandemic, mm-hmm. despite the fact that the sector is massively struggling and that parents are struggling with both the cost of it, but also the reliability of it. And then the final piece is uh, homeschooling. Uh, and what we've seen is that, you know, all parents 
are having to take the slack, but mothers are taking a much greater slack. And we're seeing that uh, mothers are reducing hours or in some are having to withdraw from the labour market and withdraw from their jobs in order uh, to keep their kids going at home. So the combination of all of this means that the pandemic has been really bad for women. And the worry is, as we move forward, all the gains that were made in terms of both pay, uh, but, but also women's progression in the labour market may be permanently eroded unless we do something to kind of counter it. Now, the report recommends stronger support for maternity leave um, and bringing back the gender pay gap reporting, which was halted uh, at the start of the pandemic. Does this show that the government sort of sees gender equality as something that's nice to have rather than a total necessity? Well, I think the fact that it was halted does indicate that. Uh, but for me, it's bigger than that. You know, gender reporting is a helpful baseline, but it's not going to solve the problem of gender um, equality. And we need far more, I would argue, robust, uh, bullshit, aggressive policies if you want to try and get gender parity. Mm. Um, so actually, the, the challenge is the fact that we're doing the bare minimum. We're doing mm. the basics that we need to. Um, and whether, you know, you're thinking about ways in which you can actively ensure that women um, are being promoted in different institutions uh, and businesses, or uh, the kind of infrastructure around that, of which childcare for me is a critical one. Uh, we know that there is a, a motherhood penalty uh, that's paid by women in the labour market. And unless we have a better system of childcare provision, and, you know, I'd turn our minds to the Scandinavian countries where actually we've got universal childcare free at mm-hmm. the point of use. Unless you have that as basics, the progress we made will be very slow and painful and stop start. And we'll have other unintended consequences. We've, we, you know, I was looking at some demographic population figures and, and, you know, we're in trouble. We're not very fertile. We're not having more children. And we're certainly disincentivized from doing that because of the lack of, of good childcare policies. Um, Caroline, you are... If there's one thing Boris Johnson can help with... <laughs> <laughs> Uh, indeed. <laughs> Caroline, you're co-chair of the APPG on gaps in support that is seeking justice for the three million or so people that have been left out of support completely during this pandemic. You know, they haven't had furlough, they haven't had uh, income support. Why has the government been so reluctant to help those that have fallen through the cracks and, and women in particular? Well, that is the question that we would love an answer to. I mean, one could understand perhaps in the very early days when the Chancellor was having to set up these schemes very quickly, you know, back in March last year, you could perhaps forgive the fact that um, originally there wasn't a a really kind of robust scheme for for the self-employed. But, you know, he has compounded that error time and time again since then by really refusing even to accept that it exists querying the, the the numbers, refusing to meet, you know, the, the, the actions have been absolutely uh, unacceptable. And when you consider that, as you say, maybe 3 million and more people haven't had any support at all since last March, that is just unforgivable. And women are, uh, I would say, disproportionately impacted by that. They are perhaps more likely to be uh, working a number of different jobs and therefore their self-employed work might not be 50% of their total income and therefore they don't get any kind of um, support for that. The, the kind of cutoffs that um, they've introduced, that the government has introduced in terms of eligibility for these different schemes are so arbitrary uh, and, and almost seem designed to mean that people won't be able to claim the money that, that they ought to be able to have in order to, to be supported. There is no parity between the self-employed and the PAYE sector. And and that just makes no sense at all. So we are again running up to this next budget, calling on the Chancellor to to mend the holes, to fill the gaps in these schemes. And we've Mm. put forward you know, a whole range of different ways that he could do that. It shouldn't be up to, to parliamentarians trying to, you know, work with tax experts to, 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 to work out how you would do this. But there are a whole range of ways he could do it. And it is just unacceptable that, that he, until now at least, is refusing to do so. Now, the other Caroline, Caroline Noakes, um, also criticised the limited involvement and calibre uh, of the women in Cabinet. Now, just six of Johnson's 26-person Cabinet are women. Do you think that's accidental design, Caroline? 
Well, I think when you have a prime minister who uses phrases like girly swat and big girl's blouse as terms of abuse, um, you know, it, it doesn't feel to me like this is a person that really has gender equality uh, running through his veins. I think that he likes to surround himself with people that, that seem like him and that are basically yes people who will, or in fact, rightfully, yes men, I could, could say in this, mm. in this case, won't challenge him. That obviously started around Brexit, but it's continued. And it just means that we have an incredibly weak cabinet, as you say, predominantly male, but but also not even men of a good quality either. I mean, they, they are uh, absolutely incapable, it seems, of, of standing up to the, to the prime minister and challenging him. And that means that we've got a government with a majority of 80 that is able to do pretty much what it likes, um, making mistake after mistake. I would argue we have an opposition that hasn't yet fleshed out what their position is going to be, and, and they're not challenging either. And it's just a tragedy at this point of our history, when we've got the COVID pandemic and all of the fallout from, from Brexit, which you know people are perhaps not focusing on as much, but which is causing massive, massive dislocation in our business sector too. It, it, it is a tragedy that we don't have stronger people, both in government and, I would argue, a, a stronger opposition too. Ah, here, Caroline Noakes was particularly scathing of the cabinet's so-called blokey mentality, uh, you know, so captured by its high-vis, hard hats, bill, 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 pandemic programme. Just a few weeks ago, the, the government was forced to pull COVID social media adverts that were showing women doing things like cleaning and ironing uh, and homeschooling while the man was lounging on a sofa. Has the pandemic exposed our underlying sexist assumptions and expectations of women's work in the home, do you think? I think that there's a large extent to which I will be unable to answer this question or like in large part because, you know, I'm I'm a man. I'm also a man who lives alone and doesn't have children. So to an extent that I'm aware of this problem, it's one that I'm not involved in, probably because I haven't been given the chance to be yet. Uh, and, <laughs> so you don't uh, sit at I, home I, eating nanny's marmalade for breakfast? <laughs> no, no. I, I am I am the one doing the cleaning, ironing and lounging on the sofa. <laughs> uh, but there is no homeschooling uh, th- thus far. But I, I'm sure like it... Annoyingly, it wasn't surprising to see that that advert had gone out and that that was the nature of government comms, which haven't been great, to say the least, for the duration uh, of this. But I suppose it goes back to like stuff that Miata in particular was saying about the assumptions that are made when voices aren't in the room. No one's saying, hang on, maybe we don't put that out because there's no counteracting voice. Well, the Ford Society and the Women's Equality Party have said that these ads expose the fact that the the cabinet has a crisis of imagination and competence. Uh, I think we'd probably all agree with that. Um, (laughs) What needs to be done to sort of take these criticisms beyond the usual voices and into the mainstream so that we don't have another generation, you know, with it just sort of being the unwritten thing that, that even if women work, they did also do so much of the other stuff in the house? I mean, to be fair to the government's sense of imagination, they have been able to think of certain very imaginative ways to spread the novel coronavirus. <laughs> um, so they have, let's, let's not take everything away from them. As with everything of getting voices into the mainstream happens when those voices are in the room in the first place. Uh, right? And I think that that um, goes for so much in terms of racial equity as well. Mm. And so I'm sure will be the case uh, in terms of gender equality and uh, other things like that as well. On, on behalf of men, I will say, like, uh, we, we've we at least got the good decency to die of coronavirus at a much greater <laughs> rate. Uh, so we have, it, it's not been all sunshine and roses for the lads. Uh, Miata, um, Labour's Stella Creasy is threatening to take the government to court to extend maternity rights after it, it published um, a law giving cabinet ministers six months maternity leave on full pay. And this means that the Attorney General, Swilla Braverman, uh, will benefit while backbench MPs like Stella would be excluded from the same rights. Now, Creasy says that she felt forced to reveal her own um, pretty early stage pregnancy and um, the, the sad history of miscarriage to draw attention to the fact that paid maternity leave is now a management luxury, a bit like, you know, a company car used to be. What do you think about gender inequalities between women in politics? Like, you know, is there just no such thing as a sisterhood? Well, I think I think it is. And, you know, to be fair, if you speak to um, 
someone like Harriet Harman, she will talk about the amazing work that female uh, MPs and politicians have done to back each other up um, and ensure that there is a place for them and the, the world of politics can bend to the fact that, uh, you know, women have entered it. Um, so so I think there is. I think it's a, a shame when the debate becomes they've got something, why not us? Um, and the point is they've got something great. Now you need to extend it to everyone else. And there's actually no basis, there's no rationale in which you can say it makes sense to have six-month paid um, maternity for this person at this level doing this sort of role, but not others in politics. And actually what we do need is more of a sisterhood, because I think if women talk collectively about it, our ability to win something that is common sense and a no-brainer, I think, is much, much greater. We might be dreaming of the day when the pandemic is over, but climate change is an even bigger and more existential threat. There's no vaccine yet for global warming. While COVID has dominated parliamentary business, opposition MPs have devised the Climate and Ecological Emergency Bill, or the CEE Bill for short, aiming to bring our climate change laws into the modern day. Caroline, you're a co-sponsor of the CEE Bill. What does it seek to do? Well, as you say, it is about updating our climate legislation, which is frankly now out of date and behind the science. So the 2008 Climate Change Act was pioneering when it was first introduced. But since then, for example, we've had the the, the Paris Climate Agreement, where instead of saying that we wanted to try to limit uh, emissions to to two degrees, instead the the, the consensus was that 1.5 was 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 the safer uh, figure. And since then as well, we've learned a lot more about, for example, the impact of our consumption emissions. Right now, the government likes to say that it has managed to get its uh, emissions down by by 40% in recent years, but it's only done that because, for example, it's outsourced so many emissions to countries like China, where we basically have now set up so much of our manufacturing so that the emissions associated with the, with the products that we import and consume, those emissions end up on China's uh, account rather than ours. So what we want to do is to align our climate legislation, first of all, with what the science demands, and that is absolutely about keeping below 1.5 degrees. The idea that net zero by 2050 is, is anywhere near ambitious enough, I think, is is clearly wrong. So get the science uh, in line with the or – get, or get the laws in line with the, with the science – the second thing it does is to um, bring nature into the whole equation because nature and climate are two sides of, of the same coin. You can't really address the climate crisis without also addressing the fact that nature is in free fall, that biodiversity is absolutely you know, crumbling right now. We, we know that there are um, huge extinctions going on, 15% of, of species face extinction right now. So it, it brings nature into that as well. And then finally, it also foresees uh, a, a, an ongoing role for a, a larger parliamentary assembly that would be of citizens, a citizens assembly that would feed into the whole process um, and give their advice and their feedback on, on the kinds of policies that we need to address the climate crisis. Now, the bill emphasises, the, the, you know, obviously the very interconnected nature of the, the climate and ecological emergency but why have previous governments failed to recognise this? And, and and as you said, you know, just exporting your emissions somewhere else doesn't deal with the fact that we all share a planet. Yeah, I think that our, our, our way of doing politics doesn't help us here because it's so compartmentalised. You know, you've got DEFRA, which is the Department for the Environment and Rural Affairs. You've then got BASE, which is the Business and Industry and Energy Department. We used to have a department for, for climate change, uh, but that's gone. But even when it was there, it didn't embrace the nature side of it either. So it feels as if you've got a really fragmented political architecture, if you like, which makes it harder to address things in a joined up way. I think some of the science around, you know, how a, a thriving natural world is so 
crucial to to getting our emissions down because of the the function of of nature being able to absorb CO2, for example. I think that has been now much more widely recognised, much more part of of the climate debate. And so there's an even stronger argument now to to pull those two agendas together. But it is, as I say, there's this fragmentation, there's this this habit of seeing things um, as as individual forces rather than recognising the interconnectedness of the crisis that we face right now. Now, the government continually talks about Britain being a world leader on climate change um, and in December announced this aim to cut 68% of, of greenhouse emissions by 2030. But how does this sit alongside its global Britain agenda? You know, how they haven't defined what that means yet, but can we trust them to meet their emissions targets while pursuing ever increased imports and exports from further afield than the EU? Well, I think that's a really good point, um, and it, it very rarely gets gets addressed. The fact that if you're importing uh, produce from from across the channel and from the EU, that's going to, generally speaking, have fewer carbon emissions than if you are depending on, uh, you know, the other side of the world, which seems to be the the aspiration of of Liz Truss, the the, the trade minister, and, and others. So there's certainly an issue there, a, a contradiction there, I think, between that kind of over stressing of of the potential for bringing trade in from from the other side of the world rather than the much bigger market that's right on our doorstep that we are now turning our backs on and i think as well that the government's got better at talking the green talk and coming up with some some more ambitious policies not ambitious enough but nonetheless 68% is a step in the right direction but the gap now is on delivery again and again there is this massive hole between what the government claims to be about and what it's actually doing. And the you know perfect example of that in recent weeks, of course, is the is the new deep coal mine in, in Cumbria, the first new uh, deep coal mine in, in 30 years, and the government has refused to call that in. And so, you know, at the very time that we are supposed to be hosting this major climate set of talks, we are also the, the, the country that is is overseeing a, a new coal mine. Uh, we're also overseeing a, a road building program, a £27 billion road building program. Uh, we are still expanding our airports. We, we still actually have an extraordinary policy on our statute book, which is about maximising the economic recovery of fossil fuels from the North Sea. I mean, um, none of this adds up. No. And so what we need to do is to close that delivery gap. We need to make sure that actually what the government says it's going to do is backed up with the policy and, and the actions that will deliver it. Miata, how does this legislation compare to the the Green New Deal that you talked about earlier uh, that's obviously been discussed in the past? I mean, it's hugely aligned, uh, not surprisingly, because uh, Caroline was one of the architects of the uh, original Green New Deal. Um, But, you know, for me, the piece around uh, the ambition on the pace of emissions reductions, I think, is critical. Um, The link between the ecological and the climate emergency and the fact that you've got to respond to both in lockstep, I think, is key. And, And then this critical point that we've got to try and seek environmental and social justice, I think, are all fundamentally aligned with the Green New Deal. What the Green New Deal does, if you see it alongside this bit bit of legislation, is then uh, get you to the how. Um, So, you know, in order to unlock it, it requires um, large scale investment. Um, And actually, one of the things that we need to see is, you know, the government putting an ambitious target on the amount that's spent each year on the green transition in the way that, for example, we have 2% of the budget going to defence. And we need to just lock that in as a kind of baseline. Uh, We know that we're going to need a pretty ambitious and robust bus mechanism of regulations and incentives to try to get the market, to get businesses, but also to get individuals to respond to this. Uh, And we are a long way from that. And then critically for me, it's about how we build in the social protections. You know, we can do this green transition in a way uh, that that is good for people, that drives up living standards, that creates good jobs, but that that won't happen organically. It's got to be part of a deliberate policy and strategy. Um, and, And, you know, just at the very basic level, you know, when we talk about just transition, in the parts of the country that we know we're going to have to see coal mines and uh, you know other things closed down, what's our plan for what we do with people in those areas uh, to mean that they're not just left behind? All of that is hard and it requires a deliberate policy program and prospectus. And what, what we have at the moment is, yes, the government's doing some things, probably rhetoric being far ahead of 
the actual substance of what it's doing. But we've got quite a long way and not much time to get to an ambitious programme of kind of policies and interventions that could actually deliver what it is that they say they want in rhetorical terms. Oh, here we are all jonesing for a holiday. Um, has, has not flying due to COVID made us rethink our carbon footprints or has it just made us feel like we're all owed an extra trip this year? Well, I think uh, a lot of stuff right on our doorstep will have made us rethink our carbon footprints. Uh, in part, I have been thinking about it purely because I live in central London and walking around is like it's just nicer to breathe than it was a year ago. So that's definitely something i don't i don't know i th- i think we we probably do want to be able to get away on the one hand i'm reminded of one of my favorite quotes of gandhiji's where he said that uh, whatever you do will be insignificant but it's very important that you do it and on the other i am thinking about the fact that the comparative inefficiencies of steel production in china probably contribute more co2 to the uh, global total than the entirety of international aviation yeah. so i will think about those two things and pour myself a very large glass of water Caroline, in a, another piece of Brexit bad news, of which, of course, there is always plenty, the EU is uh, shifting €1 billion Euros a day uh, from its carbon trading market from London to Amsterdam. How does this affect um, Britain's role in carbon reduction? Does, does carbon trading even work? Well, it's a, it's a good question, and I think we've got to see how that's going to, to pan out. But I think it is really significant that this massive sector around around services and financial services just wasn't covered at all in the trade and cooperation agreement with the EU and it was you know as if as if Boris Johnson just wasn't aware of the huge wealth that that part of our economy is generating um so it is a a, a real concern that um so much of that is now just basically leeching away from 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 the UK mm-hmm. going to the Netherlands or or, or anywhere else I mean, in terms of, of carbon trading, if you've got the right rules around it, if it is robust enough, and, and, and if you've got a price for carbon that is reflective of, of, the, of the damage that it does, then certainly carbon trading can um, have a role to play. But in terms of actually what the difference is going to make by offshoring this now to, to, to Amsterdam, I think it's, frankly, I think it's a bit too soon to say. Now, we're reorganising the NHS again, and this time in the middle of a pandemic. Last week, Health Secretary Matt Hancock announced that he's tearing up the hated Lansley reforms and centralising more power in the hands of, um, well, Health Secretary Matt Hancock. We spoke to a very good friend of the podcast to see what he thinks. My name is Roy Lilly. I'm a former NHS Trust Chairman, and now I write and broadcast about health and social care. Well, the big question at the moment is what's happening with the NHS reorganisation. And fundamentally, it amounts to a 40-page apology to the NHS for screwing it up with the Lansley reforms. He produced his 2012 Health and Social Care Act, which did a lot of things. Mainly, it smashed the NHS's organisation to pieces. We had what managers call a disaggregated management structure. That meant there was nobody actually in charge. We had several organisations at the top that were supposed to work together. More important, Importantly, they introduced a regime of contracting and competition. So for every little service the local health planners wanted to introduce, they had to put it out to tender to comply with European rules and regulations. It cost a fortune, had nothing to do with improvement in quality or cost. The whole thing was just a damn nuisance. Everybody told Lansley not to do it. I told him not to do it, but he bashed on and did it, got himself into a mess, and here we are today. Fundamentally, the real big shift is to try and move health and social care closer together. Now, that's always been the elephant in the room. Here's the big problem. Social care is means tested at the point of use. Healthcare is free at the points of use. If you merge the organizations together, you have the mother of all arguments over what's going to be means tested and what's going to be free. So what this bill does is it places a duty of working together effectively between health and social care. It does two other things. One is to allow these two organizations to merge and pool their budgets to the benefit of patients, residents, carers, and their families. So that makes a lot of sense. 
Secondly, the big change is around data. There's a big problem with health data being used for health purposes, social care data being used for social care, and health can't access social care data and social care, blah, blah. You know, you get the picture. Now, actually, during the COVID pandemic, a lot of those rules have been relaxed and they've been able to share data. It makes a huge amount of sense. And so that now will be enshrined in the new legislation. There's never a good time for a major upheaval, but most of the changes have been asked for by the NHS. People on the ground will see this is really sensible. I mean, we'll still get people who run car parks and we'll still get the big six consultancy companies who will come in and probably still waste our money with them. But fundamentally, what they're saying now to the NHS is, if you want to use the private sector, then please do. And that includes organisations such as Macmillan, for example, or the Terence Higgins Trust, who provide fantastic services. Broadly speaking, I never thought I'd say this about this government, broadly speaking, this is a package that I approve of. Oh, here, the the Johnson government is unpicking much of what the coalition did. Uh, The Health and Social Care Act, as we've heard, is one, but it's also reversed Osborne's austerity agenda quite markedly, not least because of the pandemic. What other things uh, the Cameron years did would you also want Johnson to reverse? Well, the thing that I've been thinking about the most recently has been uh, student fees, right? It's uh, been in the news on Monday, uh, certainly on Twitter, because Lewis Goodall of Newsnight uh, posted about the fact that he's uh, finally paid his off. And I'm on the same sort of repayment thing as Lewis back when it was three grand. But looking at the way that it is for people who were on the £9,000 per year uh, fees and the interest rates being the way they are, meaning that... People might not even end up touching the capital at exactly the same time in your life where you're thinking about getting onto the property ladder or starting a family. It just seems like a very absurd, like time-limited income tax increase on the young. And it would be quite nice for something to be done about that. But because it concerns people beneath the age of 60, I do not hold my breath. Well, thank you for getting in a dig to Nick Clegg for me on, on the show so that I don't have to. <laughs> Finally, John Humphreys is leaving Mastermind and it looks like Samira Ahmed of Channel 4 fame could be taking over. If Mastermind is becoming a bit less pale, sale a male should other quiz shows follow suit. Ah, here you're starter for 10, speaking as a frequent guest on Mock the Week, the news quiz, have I got news for you and others. Which quiz shows are your favourites? The ones that goddamn book me. <laughs> That's, uh, they, uh, the, the ones that get me out of the house during a pandemic. Those, those are all wonderful. Now, Mastermind has been running since about 1972, but Samira Ahmed would be the first female host. Um, and it's not just Mastermind. Why are quiz shows so male-dominated? I think it's mainly just because loads of them have been going for fucking ages, isn't it? Like, it's the it's the case with loads of legacy programming is going to be uh, taking into account what the culture of the institution that commissioned it at the time it was commissioned would be rather than something more contemporary. So I think it's hardly surprising um, that that's necessarily the case uh, when these things have existed for decades and decades. But, you know, it's nice to change it up and refresh things. And have their audiences changed? Like, do do topical quizzes just misread their audience and assume that they're all, you know, older blokes watching at home as well as on the panels? Well, I think that we all, uh, to a certain extent, misread the nature of the audience when we buy into the sort of what we will subconsciously think of as the default state of the human being. And that is one particular thing in this country at this time and is hopefully changing in the future. Uh, Certainly on this panel, I I am the most commonplace person on the world uh, out of the people on this panel. So what I'm trying to say is... There are shitloads of brown people on earth. Get me hosting all this stuff. Yeah. That's a- um, <laughs> Miata, it's not so much a quiz show, but Fiona Bruce um, has become the host of Question Time, obviously, within the last year, replacing David Dimbleby. Uh, what will it mean if we have more women fronting topical programmes? I think this, again, is a bit of a no-brainer, um, n- not least because I think that actually broadcast media have to reflect uh, the audience you know (laughs) half the audience are women and yet our screens are dominated by men I think it 
means that actually audiences can relate better. I think the quality of what's produced, the conversations, uh, the dynamics are different and better. And so for me, this is, again, just something that seems to have taken a really long time to materialise. Progress and change has been really, really slow. But we need more people that represent the people in the country represented on our screens. Caroline, you've done um, Have I Got News For You? And I think it was hosted by Joe Brand when, when you were on. What, what was that like? What was the experience well, like? I was going to kind of, uh, you know, give a shout out for Have I Got News For You, actually, because they, they do have women presenters. I haven't checked to see what the percentage is, but but you've got people like like Joe Brand, like um, Victoria Cohen Mitchell and so on. And, and I, I think you know, it does a, a pretty good job of, of being more inclusive. It was very friendly, actually. And when I when I did it, what was funny was that, you know, because Ian and, and Paul are just so witty, I mean, I just kind of forgot I was on the programme and was just, <laughs> and then realised I was meant to be making a contribution instead of just kind of um, just <laughs> back and listening. But no, it, it was, it, it was, it was very friendly and, um, and, and less daunting than it looks. Okay, well, we're going to go daunting now, because in the spirit of Mastermind, we've asked each of you uh, for your specialist subject, um, and we're going to put a few Mastermind questions to you. So, da-da-da-da, Caroline, your topic is the poetry of Emily Dickinson. Before I ask you the questions, why do you love her so much? She was one of the first poets that I came across when I was at school. I had a, a best friend called Rachel who introduced me to her and we both were supposed to be doing violin practice in the practice rooms at school, but she used to smuggle her poetry book upstairs. So my violin playing was absolutely rubbish, but I got to love Emily Dickinson very much. Oh, okay, so here we go. Dickinson named her dog Carlo after a dog in which of her favourite books? I do know the answer to this question. <laughs> uh, give me a clue. I, I've just read that. Yeah, J-E are the initials of the book. Oh, um, yes, uh, Jane Eyre. It was yeah. the, um, yeah, uh, what's his face? I think St John, um, yeah, anyway, Jane Eyre. Since then, tis centuries and yet feels shorter than the day I first surmised the horses' heads were toward eternity. Name the poem. That one isn't because I could not stop the death, is it? It is! Oh, Got it, well done. <laughs> okay, are here, uh, because you are <laughs> such a massive nerd, you have chosen the government's self-employment income support scheme. I do absolutely love as well the fact that Caroline's reasoning behind choosing Emily Dickinson was that the poetry books were smuggled into violin practice, and I'm like, we went to very different schools. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> so... Under the self-employment support scheme for November 2020 to January 2021, a person with profits of £50,000 a year and no other income would receive a total grant of £7,500. How much does a person who owns profits of £50,001 get? So £1 over that £50,000. Averaged over the three tax years uh, in consideration, zero. Boom, correct. That is madness, by the way. Um, a person who derives 51% of their income from self-employment can claim up to a maximum of £7,500 a quarter for the scheme. How much can a person who derives 49% of their income from self-employment claim? The big O once again. <laughs> Boom. And um, that, that's also madness. Um, and what uh, special provisions are made for topical comedians who derive their income from mocking the government? Uh, uh, we, we actually get extra. Uh, there's, a, there's a strong sadomasochistic streak. And so I've, I've been getting uh, weekly checks of uh, a million, actually, a million a week. Very good. Uh, I'm very pleased to hear it. Maybe we can redistribute that to some of the people who've been. No, 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 no. (laughs) My million, baby. Miata, as a politics junkie, we shouldn't be surprised that your specialist subject is political dramas. Here we go. In the Good Wife, how does Will Gardner die? Oh, God. Oh my goodness! Um, uh, uh, he was shot. Yes. Where? Can you remember where? 
for an extra half no, I can't remember. <laughs> in the courtroom by his client, and he was shot dead in the in, his, in the courtroom by his client. Oh, I hate it when that happens. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we'll give you we'll give you another go with this question. In the West Wing, whose CIA code name is Flamingo? <laughs> I can give you their job title if that helps you get their G- name. Give me, give me their job title. Press secretary. Uh, CJ. Yay! Well done. Yeah. Well done. Well done. Well done. Okay. Well, I think somebody else needs to ask me. Ask me mine. Yes, Naomi. I've I've got your questions. Uh, so your specialist subject is the viral vampire horror drama, The Strain, on the FX channel, uh-huh. uh, which I've not heard of. What is it? Uh, it's it's amazing. Um, but obviously, for those of you that may have struggled with, you know, a, a viral outbreak. Uh, causing everyone to go a bit mad um, and get very unwell. Don't watch it. But yeah, it's it's a fantastic five-season uh, dystopian post-apocalyptic horror with some brilliant actors in it. And it's it's about how New York and then the rest of the USA crumbles when a virus that causes people to turn into zombies breaks out. What's not well, excellent. As someone who has only lived through a dystopia for four seasons, as of now, <laughs> uh, I, I'm very excited to find out what happens in the fifth. So, your first question is, uh, which character in The Strain is named after a character in a book by Philip K. Dick? I have no idea what's it. I don't know. I don't know. Uh, it's it's apparently Eldritch Palmer. Oh, yeah. Uh, who's oh. named after the three stigmata of Palmer Eldritch, and they, they swip that around. Very good. Okay. Second question. You can redeem yourself on this. Which legendary actor was cast as the show's central character, vampire hunter and Holocaust survivor, Professor Abraham Setrakian, but dropped out and was replaced by David Bradley? Oh, my God. Okay, he's the one... He's the guy that plays um, in in Harry Potter. He's the... Uh, keep the, the caretaker in the school. Is it is it called David Bradley? Is that the right name? That that is that oh. is who ended up doing it. Yeah, but it's, we're looking for the person who was originally cast and then replaced by David. Not Bradley. a Scooby Doo. Not a clue. Oh right. Okay. That was unfortunately for you, John Hurt. Oh, well, good old John Hurt. But he should he should have stuck with it because. By God, it's a good series. Um, Okay, Uh, I definitely didn't win uh, that mastermind round. And I think on balance, we can all safely agree that our guest, Caroline Lucas, is crowned mastermind champion of the bunker. And that's the end of this week's show. Thanks to our special guest, Caroline Lucas. Thanks so much, Naomi. To Ahisha. Thank you. And to Mieta Farnbuela. Thanks for having me. We'll be back tomorrow with another Bunker Daily and the full-length show this time next week. Don't forget to subscribe. And if you enjoyed the show, uh, you can back the Bunker on Patreon. Just see our Twitter or Facebook or search Patreon Bunker Podcast for details. Backers get an honorary salute on the show and here are some now. It's thanks from me to Christina Pedrel, Tommaso V, or Tommaso V, not sure, and Ian Brown. Hello, and a big thanks from me to Neil Elts, Richard Manns, and Alexander Sutherland. And finally, hello and thanks from me to Ross Bennett, Matthew, and Colin Wilson. We'll see you all next time. The Bunker was presented by Naomi Smith, with Ahir Shah, and Miata Farnbella. The producer was Andrew Harrison. The assistant producers were Jacob Archbold and Yelena Sofronievich. An audio production was by me, Alex Reese. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production.